Hi, this is Marie Cha. If you like what you hear on Making Contact, now is the time to go to radioproject.org. Click the big red-hearted donate button at the top of the page and help us get community voices heard. Thanks, and here's this week's show. Making, making contact. Making, 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 making contact. I stood brave inside your courage and tall inside your legacy. You carried me through and out of that godforsaken town, landing me here to your birthplace where the heart of the panther beats on. And I see you. I see your pain buried beneath personas you put on when you walk out your front door. I see wounded warriors speaking at rallies and being honored at dinners. I see strained budgets and bodies that push forward in spite of it all. I see new generations trying to emulate you and failing. We cannot be you. We can never be you. That was your time and your space. There is no turning back the clock. The way we honor you is to walk forward along the path that you have laid, praying with moving hands and feet while doing the work in your name. I'm Eric Arnold. Fifty years after the birth of the Black Panther Party, we take a look at the cultural legacy of the Panthers through the eyes of the generations which followed. We're in the Oakland Museum of California. Downstairs, the Black Panther Party is holding its 50th reunion. Upstairs, an exhibit called All Power to the People, the Black Panther Party at 50, pays tribute to their work. Inside the gallery doors, middle school students are huddled in groups taking notes. Couples put down their bags to snap selfies while sitting in a replica of the iconic bamboo chair made famous by Huey Newton. The 10-point program is written in bold typeface across a large wall. It spells out the Panthers' demands for racial justice and social equality. Curator Rene de Guzman spent three years putting together the exhibit. So you see the list, but also see these very rare, uh, rare never-before-seen documents of the draft of the 10-point platform. And what I like to do is point people out to how they constructed language so that they would be easily understandable by lay people. So they were very careful about language, but also very specific about ideas. For instance, I'm looking at point number seven, which refers to ending police brutality. And it's a really important note because they underlined self-defense three times. So it really underscores the idea of arming themselves with a self-defensive measure, not an offensive measure. And that's something that's lost. One especially personal piece is an installation that Sadie Barnett built around her father's FBI files. I think that's a poignancy of, of Sadie's work, how the government's massive efforts to discredit and dismantle the, the Panthers had a personal impact. Her father, Rodney, suffered from the FBI program. So it reminds us that, you know, we have to be mindful of what the government does on our behalf because it has real human consequences. Sadie is a Panther cub, the child of party members. Her father was the founder of the Compton chapter of the Black Panther Party. Before joining the Panthers, he was drafted to fight in the war in Vietnam. 
My dad was so young at the time, that's something that also strikes me. I mean, he had just come back from Vietnam, where he was drafted at the age of 21. And when he came back from Vietnam, he saw the police brutality and in Compton, where he returned to, and really felt like the police were doing search and destroy missions the way that he had done in Vietnam. That's what the police were doing to the black community. Sadie's installation covers one corner of the gallery. She's papered over the walls with government documents detailing her father's daily life. The papers are dotted with glitter, pink spray paint, and family photographs. We actually got my dad's FBI file back. So it was over 500 pages of COINTELPRO surveilling my father and other members of the party throughout all sorts of activities. They interviewed his neighbors, his brothers and sisters, his high school teacher, every employer that he's ever had. I really wanted the viewer to be aware of the scale and scope of how massive the file was. I created basically a wallpaper, just tiling a bunch of pages on the wall. And then on top of that, I've hung three family photographs. One shows my dad fairly young, as about 13 years old. One shows uh, like him at the time that the files were being gathered. So it's the early 70s. He's posing in front of a car with his two sisters. Um, and then there's another photograph that's basically a blurry Polaroid of like a living room dance party. Um, so I really wanted to emphasize, you know, what was going on behind these files. So he's, you know, described as a subject and a terrorist in the files, but in reality he was a community organizer, also a family member. There's also moments of spray paint in bright pink on some of the pages of the file, which is really my way of interacting with the material and reclaiming the material, putting my mark on it. COINTELPRO's attempts to undermine, discredit, and sow dissension among the Panthers were often intrusive. Going through the files was definitely a lot of mixed emotions. In a way, it's almost a family tree at some moments. My dad was one of 11 children, and it lists all his brothers and sisters and their birthdays, their addresses of different houses as well as his whole military record. So a lot of things that were very personal and in a way it felt like information that maybe some families would have written in their Bibles, you know, marriages and deaths. But it's coming from the FBI who, you know, was doing this very invasive harassment of my father. And there's one page in particular where it lists different former members and in parentheses, all of them except for my dad, it says deceased. Um, including John Huggins, who was assassinated at UCLA. And my father was actually supposed to be there with him that day, but he couldn't get off of work. And it later came out that he was assassinated by the FBI. The person who assassinated him admitted it, and a lot of people are still in jail because of their involvement. There's still a lot of political prisoners that are locked up, even as we're celebrating the 50th anniversary. The FBI recorded intimate details of Sadie's family history and used that information to dismantle the party and disrupt the lives of its members. At the time, Sadie's dad worked at the post office. There's an informant at the meeting, one of the Black Panther meetings, and my dad is at the meeting in his post office uniform. So the informant tells the FBI, this member works for the government. 
because he's a letter carrier. And that gave them more reason to investigate him because they were investigating the security of a government employee. And they actually fired him from the post office for cohabitating with a woman whom he was not married to. And they cited an article saying that it was behavior unbecoming of a government employee. And that law is actually was on the books because Truman enacted that law to get gays out of government employee. And they used it to also fire activists from government positions, which I think is just one of those really powerful examples where people think, oh, this law doesn't affect me. You know, this law only affects you know, the poor, or this law only affects Muslims. It doesn't affect me. But you never know when it could be used against you, depending on who is seen as an enemy of the government. Throughout this process, Sadie learned not just about her father, but also about the depths of the U.S. government's counterinsurgency programs and the life-altering impact on party members and their families. I mean, a lot of people have been asking me, you know, what I learned about my dad through this project, but I really feel like I learned more about our government through this project because, you know, I, I'm lucky that my dad is living and talks to me about these kinds of things, so I, I knew a lot about his involvement in the Panthers, but I had no idea that the level of scrutiny was going to be so intense. Um, it just really shows that, you know, he was considered a terrorist by the government, and they were very, very fearful of the change that the Panthers were talking about making and thought that it was, you know, our country's future depended on dismantling the Black Panthers, and that is what they did. The Black Panthers were really aware of how important art and culture and aesthetics were to the movement and to organizing and also, uh, as they say, to capture the imagination of the people. Rifa Sané is another Panther cub and artist. He was influenced both by his Panther parents and by Emery Douglas, former Panther Minister of Culture. He recently curated the Point 2.0, a Panther tribute at the Joyce Gordon Gallery. He embraces the Panther ideology and much of their rhetoric. I caught up with Rifa at a bus stop across the street from the gallery. Well, what's relevant is the politics of the Panthers today because the conditions still remain. Every point on the 10-point platform is more relevant now than it was 50 years ago. Not one point has been met. Not one point has been met. And so that speaks to the theme of our show at the Joyce Gordon Gallery, which is called The Point Is 2.0, Relevance of the 10-Point Platform in the 21st Century, because we recognize that the conditions have not changed, they've gotten worse. And so it's very important that our people begin to study the ideology and philosophies of the Black Panther Party and also look 
to see where it can evolve. Reef's show features rare historical paintings and photos of iconic panthers, as well as rank-and-file members. For Reefa, one of the most poignant images is a photograph of two women working at the Panthers printing press to produce the newspaper. See, the people, one of the things that I find interesting when I look at the photography is how young these courageous Panthers were. A lot of people, when they think of the Panthers, they think of somebody maybe 30 years old, maybe older. Um, most of the Panthers were under 21. And you see that youth when you see these images. When you see the images of the rank and file Panthers, you see two strong warrior sisters who were teenagers working at the national distribution headquarters for the Black Panther Party paper, committed to make change, committed to make change, and willing to put in the work to make that happen. Rifa wants more young people to learn from the Panthers' example. We stand as the hip-hop generation on the shoulders of our elders and ancestors that struggled at that time. So it's directly connected. The type of courage where we speak and impose our political views onto the streets is something that I learned from the Panthers, directly from Emory Douglas, because this was a person that understood that images can shape people's thinking. When I asked Rifa what's changed, since the era of the Panthers, he says. Well, what has changed is that the enemy has become more sophisticated. And when I say the enemy, I'm talking about the United States capitalist imperialist government. It has become more sophisticated. It's been able to put a black face on white fascism, like uh, Obama. But he is a lapdog for the white power imperialists. And we understand that. And so our enemy has become more sophisticated. The propaganda machine that they had 50 years ago is not as complex as the one they have today. And so there's more confusion in media today. Um, and so in that respect and regard, much has not changed in terms of the oppression of the people. It has become worse. And when I say it's become worse, I'm saying that there are more people starving. There are more people without the resources that they need. There is more war on the planet than there was during the Vietnam era, okay? I mean, the United States is fighting wars all over the place and undeclared wars, even in Africa right now, under the guise of AFRICOM. So when you have murdering organizations like this committing acts of terror all over the planet, including the United States, calling you a terrorist for taking a stand against tyranny, that's a joke. I do understand that they try to create a dangerous climate for justice-loving people, but we will not be shaken by their attempts. The people will stand and organize to make change, and they can call us whatever they want. But as long as we are on their mind, that we're going to be a thorn in their behind until we get free, that's good enough for me. If you're just tuning in to Making Contact, I'm Eric Arnold, and today we're talking about the cultural legacy of the Black Panther Party.
The cultural legacy of the Black Panthers extends beyond Panther cubs like Rifa and Sadie. It's also evident in the community-based activism of folks like Hodari Davis, who grew up in the Panther era. As a child, Hodari was influenced by the Panthers' positive affirmations of blackness. Today, he works with children's vocal group Young, Gifted, and Black and organizes Oakland's annual Life is Living Festival. For the past nine years, Life is Living has been held at Defremery Park. The park became a mainstay of West Oakland's black community during World War II and was a power base for the Panthers in the 60s and 70s. Defremery Park is also known as Little Bobby Hutton Park, named after the youngest member of the Panthers who was killed by Oakland police in 1968. In the midst of the Life is Living festivities, I met up with Hodari inside of a Victorian once owned by the Defremery family. The large, echoey room was the only relatively quiet place in the park that day. Oftentimes in our conversation about the Panthers today, we talk about the past. And I think it would do us well to turn our analysis of the Panthers to focus on how can we utilize the principles and the lessons they learned either through study or through hard knocks. <laughs> how can we take those lessons and apply them for the future? And Life is Living is an example of how that can happen in one day. And if a hundred artists and a hundred activists can be engaged on one day for eight hours, what's possible for us for a full year? In recent years, many artists and activists have focused their energies on building the movement for Black Lives. Black Lives Matter evokes Panther slogans like black is beautiful and all power to the people. I think that um, Black Lives Matter is a statement that is a softer version of the 10 point plan <laughs> because it's three, you know, it's three words. Um, the Panthers didn't have hashtags. <laughs> they didn't have social media. They didn't have uh, camera phones. You know, they weren't able to tweet their story the Panthers were about being in the streets. They weren't a selfie organization. They didn't sit down and do blog posts and, you know. So what we have, we have a 10-point plan. We have Emory's art. We have words that we remember like pigs, you know, uh, monikers that they created or, or, or limericks, you know, power to the people, you know, th things that we remember that I remember that I learned as a child, black is beautiful, that were so profound to me, those simple words, and Black Lives Matter to me is one of those things. One lasting symbol of black power is the raised fist. Odari says it's equally important to emphasize black joy and black love. I think that the news media and the common narrative about black people, especially at this time, or even in the time of the Panthers, was that we were really angry. And most of the time, you know, when those young men were feeding those babies, they weren't angry. <laughs> that was an act of love. That was not an act of anger. When they were speaking about survival programs, even when they're patrolling the police, there's no part of anger with that. That's like accountability. I think that, you know, we often associate our resistance with, with rage. Our like universal symbol of resistance is a fist. It's not a heart. It could be a kissing face, but it's not, it's a fist. And that, that 
means something. That's not like law, that's lost on a lot of people, but it's not lost on me. The black fist is the symbol of resistance to white supremacy, resistance to capitalism. You see the black fist at police rallies. You see it at fight against the TPP. I'm sure if I went to the Dakota pipeline right now, somebody's got their fist in the air. I know that. But why are we a fist? We definitely hug more than we punch. <laughs> we definitely dance and love each other, love on each other way more than we fight each other. We definitely do. I see it all out here in the park, especially when the sun is out. I think that the ultimate demonstration of resistance to me is black joy. We need to smile. We need to be happy to see each other. We need to hug our babies. And we need to show them that we're not just walking around mad all the time. We need to demonstrate to them, as much as we show them how to resist, we need to also show them how to love. You know, as much as we show them how to, how to be angry and how to channel anger, we should show them how to channel joy. We are in the Fruitvale District of Oakland. Tucked into an industrial stretch that runs alongside the railroad tracks is a large warehouse, the home of Red Bay Coffee. Uh, and this table is particularly special because we're trying to profile this coffee. We're trying to find a roast profile that fits and matches this coffee. So I've roasted it about eight times. This is the, the second edition of four. And today we're going to taste them all and say, I like this one, or I dislike that one. Or, and uh, if one is chosen today by all of us, we're like, that one right there is the best thing I've ever had in my life. Then you guys will have taken part in the profile. We'll just... we get the name. <laughs> the Panthers have always been an influence on Kay Bacante, the founder and owner of Red Bay Coffee. We just haven't seen anything like the Black Panther Party for self-defense. Since it's, I mean, you know, we're, we've tried, but the movement is very uh, topic specific. And uh, really what I really appreciated about the, the Black Panther Party was their, you know, their bravery to confront police without cameras. And I mean, it was that work that we know more about, but it was, you know, the ambulance and it was the, you know, taking care of old folks and it was medical care and it was it was breakfast programs and free groceries and um, I mean it was amazing but you know that was also the time right that they were in they were sort of a manifestation of what was happening in that moment so we're we can't repeat that uh, that would be a failure so but how do we take it to a higher level how do we become our ancestors wildest dreams you know, what are we doing to manifest their wildest dreams? And economic empowerment is a big piece of it. Cabe grew up in San Francisco. His mother was a photographer and his father a carpenter. He grew up watching his mother work in their basement darkroom. At age 13, he got his own camera. I didn't get serious about photography until I got into college, San Francisco State University. And, uh, you know, we were sort of organizing international groups of people around, you know, anti-Iraq war, around, you know, uh, police brutality, 
um, in particular Rodney King at the time, so that, that sort of a lot of the struggles from the early 90s. I think what was really different about here in the Bay Area was that, was that people were very independent in creating their own independent companies, their own record companies, their merchandising companies and magazines and, you know, uh, radio. Kaba began his career as a hip-hop photographer and visual artist. Many people remember his iconic artwork. He transferred photos of international political activists directly onto wood. Today, he's building on the Panther legacy of serving the community through Red Bay Coffee. Coffee is traditionally, or retail coffee, is traditionally a low-income wage industry. So in terms of that particular coffee shop in Oakland, it was great that, um, that we could have, you know, all young black and brown folks working there. But, you know, and the other piece was getting better wages and, you know, just keep striving on, on how we can have a greater impact on our community. And part of it was giving folks a second chance who could really use a second chance. So we've got about 20, 25% of our workforce. Uh, we've got 30 people working at Red Bay Coffee. Um, are formerly incarcerated, um, men and women. Um, we have two people who've both done over 20 years uh, each. But we also have folks who've been aged out of foster home care, which is a huge issue. We've got people here who, who are in wheelchairs and folks here who are you know, college graduates from Ivy League schools, and they're black and they're women. And for some reason, they're not in these other coffee companies. And when I see all this talent, I see, as my, my sister would always say, they're leaving money on the table. And what I mean by that is, this is a lot of untapped resources of brilliant, creative, smart people, talented, ready to work, ready to dig in. While Red Bay Coffee embraces many of the Panthers' community-oriented ideals, it's also a for-profit business, a departure from the anti-capitalist stance of the Black Panther Party. At Red Bay, Kaba is working to redistribute wealth and grow the business in ways that benefit more people. So part of what we do and part of why I like profit sharing as a principle of, of what we do is it gets people's heads into understanding the business and not just clocking in and clocking out and doing your time, but now all of a sudden you're invested in the business also. You're, you're starting to understand how to create a profit, how to reduce your waste, how to drive up your sales, how to you know, tweak and tinker your business, your menu, your price structure, uh, your, your marketing in order to create a successful business. Kaba's sense of community extends beyond the people who work for Red Bay Coffee. He's building relationships directly with coffee farmers in Ethiopia and Tanzania. The relationships that we're sourcing from in Ethiopia and Tanzania and the profit sharing that we do with those farms and the, the higher than fair trade, quote unquote, um, rates that we, that we pay to farmers. Um, it is, you know, the, the, the relationship with, you know, the entire value chain of the coffee. From, you know, from the, from the producers to the growers to the pickers, you know, to the family farm co-ops, 
uh, and of course here to the roasters and the baristas and you know um, we're doing our best to take care of everybody. Second question is which of these were was your favorite? Which one did you guys think really was these two? I think the first one. First one. This is my favorite one. Okay. Any other takers? That's it for this edition of Making Contact. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend. You can download a copy of the show and subscribe to our podcast at radioproject.org. The poem you heard at the beginning was by Kat Brooks. The music today included Panther Town by Ross Elan and Dance of the Displaced by Kev Choice. Eric Arnold hosted and recorded audio for today's show. Lisa Redman is our executive director. Our producers are Marie Cha, Anita Johnson, Monica Lopez, and RJ Lozada. Sabine Blazant is our digital uh, content yeah. and community engagement like, manager. Like Thanks for table. listening to Making Contact. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>